The following message was recorded at Covenant Presbyterian Church in Oviedo, Florida. Covenant is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America, a community committed to seeing the gospel deeply rooted in our lives and in the lives of our neighbors in the Oviedo area. We welcome you to visit us on Sunday mornings in Oviedo or anytime online at cpcovito.com. Our sermon text this morning is Matthew 7, verses 21 to 27. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell, and great was the fall of it. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, we're so grateful that you bring us together. We're thankful for your love for us. Father, that love is seen surely in the cross, that you gave your son on our behalf, and that he was raised again from the dead for our justification. We see that. Your love is spread across every page of Scripture. Your concern for us is deep. Um, Father, you have made a promise covenantally to be our God. We pray, Lord, now in our time together, you would help us to understand not only what that means, but what it means to be your people. We pray, Father, that you would shape our hearts, um, soften them, Cause us to be receptive, that we might be able to hear and do what you tell us. We pray this through Jesus Christ, our Savior and Lord. Amen. So yeah, we could continue the list, I think, of sandy things, um, words that we've been given since childhood, uh, practice makes perfect, Um, when the going gets tough. What? The tough get going, yes. Um, My daughter says that Barb uh, always said, I don't remember this growing up, use the brains God gave you. Okay, there's one. Um, Believe in yourself. Oh, here's Disney. If you can dream it, you can do it. Uh, When life gives you lemons, what? Make lemonade, of course. Maybe more cynically, keep your friends close and your enemies closer. Or boldly, pain is just weakness leaving the body, yeah. So wisdom is out there, um, ways of, of you know, bending and shaping and directing your life is readily at hand. The self-help section of any bookstore is significant, and much of what is said, really much of what is said has some truth to it, right? And we're drawn to it. We're drawn to it because uh, living is insufficient for us. It's easy just to stay alive. Um, 
but we want to thrive. We want to flourish. We want there to be more to life than just uh, the breaths we take between sunrise and sunset. Now, for some, that thriving, you know, for all of us, I suppose, it takes on slightly different meanings. For some, it means to make the most money. For others, have the most friends. For some, the biggest house. Uh, for some, maybe internally achieve something akin to nirvana or to find one's own true self or so forth and so on. But at the root of all of this, we would understand that there is an inner human longing to get back to the garden, to get back to the garden, to get back to that place where in our original creation all was right, all was the way it was supposed to be. There was fullness, there was satisfaction, there was contentment. The Eden we want to get, it's Eden we want to get back to, uh, even if we don't have the language to express that. Jesus understands the source of that longing. Jesus understands the depth of that longing. And only Jesus understands and communicates the pathway to fulfill that longing. And though we resist it, Jesus' wisdom is absolutely true for its divine. It comes from his godhood. He knows as our creator that which is the wise path for us. And so those, excuse me, who thrive will be those Christians who embrace it. So this text is a summary uh, call for us to embrace the wisdom of Jesus. But there is a problem, and we all know it. And that is, we have fallen hearts, and fallen hearts resist Jesus' wisdom. We resist the wisdom of Jesus. So we've, this is the Sermon on the Mount, right? We've talked about it. We've been looking at it for a long time. It's this extended chunk of teaching that, Jesus, that is recorded of Jesus' teaching. It runs from chapter 5 through chapter 7 of the Gospel of Matthew. And as we get to the end, he is summing things up. He's saying, okay, now here's the picture of how you need to respond to all of this. And he presents this challenge framed as two alternatives. Verse 24, uh, verse 24, it's on this page, pardon me. Uh, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them, that's the one side of it. And we're going to take this in pieces. And the other side of it is verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them. So he frames this contrast between those who hear his words and do them and those who hear his words and do not do them. But notice what is the same. He is speaking to those who hear his words. He is addressing his disciples. He is addressing those who are given attention to him. He's not addressing the world, nor is he giving his disciples instructions on how to fix the world. He's addressing his disciples and saying, are you hearing me? And are you going to show that you hear me by doing what I have spoken? The crux of the matter is whether you and I, as the church, hear what Jesus says and respond to what he says. And oddly enough, do you see how that challenge that he's given should be totally and completely unnecessary? Uh, you know, we, those of our persuasion were not called Christians until Acts chapter 11. What were we before then? We were disciples. 
We are disciples of Jesus. That's who we are. We are disciples. What is a disciple? A disciple is a follower. So it is sort of, um, you know, given that someone who is a follower of Jesus would follow Jesus. That a follower of Jesus would hear his words and do them. That, that seems to be obvious, but what is also obvious is that we have this core problem, that our hearts resist that. We resist being told what to do. We resist particularly the way of God. Now, to kind of illustrate this and expand on this, I'm going to dip back into our heritage as a Presbyterian church. A part of our inheritance is a set of documents of which, with which many of you are familiar, the, the Westminster Confession of Faith, and together with it, the larger and shorter catechisms that were uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, crafted by 17th century theologians and pastors uh, in, in an effort to give to the church a clarity in terms of what we are to believe, what we understand the Bible teaches. Um, and, you know, there are riches throughout those documents. This morning, I particularly want to look at one of the uh, answers that are given in the larger catechism, which is a document we don't often dig into. And to get to that, you know, in, our, in this, this Sermon on the Mount, Jesus in chapter 6 gives some instructions on prayer. You'll remember that. We call it the Lord's Prayer. And he says, pray then like this. And in that, he tells us to whom to pray, our Father in heaven, how to address him, our Father who is in heaven. And then he lists six categories uh, of requests. The first is, hallowed be your name. The second is your kingdom come. Notice how all of these are focused on God. Your, may your name be honored. Uh, may your kingdom that we long for actually come. But the third is where I want to land. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what's curious to me is, man, when I hear that, when I hear this prayer, uh, your will be done, what immediately comes to mind is, yeah, I want other people to start doing what God says. They really need to get their acts together and, and shape up. God says this stuff, why aren't you doing it? Uh, what's curious about this inheritance we have from our, 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 our forefathers is that they see it as focused in on us. Jesus is teaching this prayer to Christians, to disciples. And he's announcing that we should be praying that we ourselves would be hearing these words of Jesus and doing them. And we struggle to do this, the catechism acknowledges, because we, like all people, and follow along here, are not only utterly unable and unwilling to know and to do the will of God, but prone to rebel against His Word. It is in our nature to resist and to rebel against what God says because God has said it. You know, um, not to call any children out, but the other night we had some young children around the house and, and coming from the bathroom was this shout, I can do it myself. Ah, okay. There is the native uh, human response to the authority of God. I can do this myself, God. I don't need what you say. We are utterly unable, unwilling to know and to do the will of God, but prone to rebel against his word. That's why Jesus is saying, pray for this. Ask the Holy Spirit 
to be a part of our lives, to melt away that native resistance. We need help. And so the, 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 the catechism goes on to say that what we pray then is that God would, by His Spirit, take away from ourselves and others all blindness, weakness, indisposedness, and perverseness of heart and replace it positively by his, that He would, by His grace, make us able and willing to know, do, and submit to His will in all things. Jesus gives us wisdom here that we are prone to rebel against, and we need to be asking God to take away that native rebellion that we might love His Word and do His Word. So at this point, I just, we're left at this particular place where I just want you to think about this thing. It's where we were last week in, in some sense. Following Jesus, i.e. being a Christian, is not a simple, easy, or automatic thing. Yes, our salvation is completely and wholly by faith, no matter what I do. It is all dependent on Jesus. My, my level of obedience or disobedience does not change what Jesus accomplished for me on the cross. I fall on my face and I'm still saved. I turn and I, and, I, and I do acts of rebellion and I'm still saved. Because my salvation rests in what Jesus did, not in what I do. We're firmly convinced, even, of a doctrine of election. And if you don't understand what I'm talking about, I'd love to have a conversation with you. We understand that if any come to faith in Christ, it's because the Father has chosen us, Jesus has saved us, and the Holy Spirit has drawn us and given us a new heart. We're fully convinced of all of that, but we also are fully convinced that be a, to be a Christian means that we have made a choice to follow Jesus, that He has called us, He has called us to deny ourselves and take up His cross and follow Him. We have decided to follow Jesus, and this decision to follow is one that is constantly opposed and therefore is difficult. And so the, the point thus far is simply to say, wherever your hearts are, renew your resolve to follow Jesus. You realize the Christian life is more like pedaling a bike than it is driving a car. A car, once it is running, you know, will just go. You know, up and down, around, and so forth. Uh, a bicycle, on the other hand, is constantly meeting resistance. And it may be very tempting just to shut the thing down, get off of it, and go sit in a chair. Resistance is always there, Christian. Your obedience will be resisted. And there is a challenge and a call to press forward, believing that the destination is worth the effort. So this text calls you to follow and to renew your resolve to follow. So examine your heart. Only you and the Holy Spirit know what's in that heart of yours. But make sure that you have determined, even against all resistance, to both hear the words of Jesus and do them. So that's our first acknowledgement here, that the fallen heart resists Jesus's wisdom. And yet, this is nevertheless the path that we desire. Why? Because it is the path of thriving. Excuse me.
So Jesus' challenge goes on, and again, we look at, at these um, contrasts. Everyone, verse 24, um, everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. That contrasts in verse 26, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them, does not do them, will be like a foolish man. So Jesus invites us into wisdom here. What's wisdom? Wisdom is the path that corresponds to the way the world works. And Jesus, as the divine Son of God, knows what that is supposed to be. So to shape your life according to the way that life is meant to work is the path along which you will thrive. Now, if you'll permit me an absurdity here, it seems clear to me that the way life works is that God intended for us to walk on our legs and feet. That's the way, to, you know, to walk on our legs and feet corresponds to the way that life is meant to work. To try to make it through life by walking on one's arms and hands would be foolish, not wise, and we would not thrive. It would be to live counter to the way things are supposed to be. Now, that's obvious to us. And right there is the crux of our problem with the wisdom of Jesus. We want the wisdom of Jesus always to be obvious to us. Okay? Uh, the way of wisdom, the way of Jesus is the way of thriving, but it's not always obvious. He is always right, but sometimes what he teaches feels to us so counterintuitive, it's like he's telling us to walk on our hands. Turn the other cheek, he says. Do not seek revenge. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, when everything in our human person boils up and we want to pour out the venom on that person who has just poured his venom on us. The way of Jesus seems counterintuitive. It doesn't seem obvious to us. And yet, we are told that that's the way of wisdom. That's the way the world is supposed to work. You see, the problem here is, is in, 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 in addition to everything that was said on the first point, is that we don't believe Jesus. Our faith is weak. We struggle to walk the path of wisdom because we struggle to believe that Jesus can be trusted. Just preceding the text that I had Andrew read from the book of Proverbs this morning was this, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom instruction. And I, and I want to get that language. What, where, do, where is the heart of this? Where, where do we begin in this, this pathway of thriving? It is the fear of the Lord. What is the fear of the Lord? Uh, I, I know most of you have been taught here what fear means is to, the honor and respect that is due our Father and Savior and honor and respect that issues forth in trust and obedience. It is faith. It is trust. It is confidence. It is honor. You know, when someone in authority over us says, I want you to do X, and we do X, we honor him. And so we are to follow Jesus because we trust him. We trust him. We believe what he says. We believe his word. That is, we fear him in the best sense of that word. The wisdom of Jesus, as it's found for us in at least this segment, chapters 5, 6, and 7, is not always obvious to it. And so because of that, we are tempted to close our eyes to it. Yes, we know that Jesus teaches here, let your yes be yes and your no be no. We know that he, he, he presents to us this utter and complete honesty. 
But we also know that if we don't get a certain grade on the test that is before us, if we, don't, if we, if we fill out the application and are completely honest about it, we may not pass the course or we may not get that loan or we may not get that grant that we're seeking. And so we trade in the long-term wisdom and thriving that Jesus offers us in exchange for some type of short-term gain. Why? Because we don't trust Jesus. The fear of the Lord has left us. And every day such devotion to short-term solutions trump Jesus' long-term wisdom because our faith is weak. But Jesus himself displayed the wisdom that he speaks of in his word. His short-term, he could have opted for a short-term solution as he was arrested by the Romans. I was trimming a part of my beard this morning and clipped my ear. And I thought, you know, they're in the garden. You know, Peter cut off some guy's ear. Uh, I have weird thoughts. <laughs> but Jesus was right there to restore the ear. Boom, just like that. And Jesus could have done he could have exercised that power on his behalf. He could have called forth a legion of angels to destroy the Romans and spare his life. That would have been the short-term solution, but it would not have been obedience to his father. He was absolutely repulsed by the cross, but in reverence for his father as well as love for us, he chose wisdom, not expediency, obedience over ease. The result was life. Now, Jesus is a model, but he's so much more than that. I was once speaking to a woman years and years ago um, and, and trying to challenge her in ways in which Jesus would suggest that she love her husband. Now, he was a broken person like all of us husbands are and all of us wives, but I encouraged her to love her husband as Jesus had loved her, and she nearly screamed at me, I'm not Jesus. I get that, point made. But my point here is Jesus is always a model, but he's more than a model. He's our motivation. To see that this one who loved us and gave himself for us, to see that that is how he relates to us, that we are absolutely and completely loved, is a challenge to love him back as best I can in doing what I'm taught. It is to trust this one who would die in my place to trust that the words he give, gives us are in accord with the way that life is meant to work. He died for me knowing all the foolish, rebellious choices I would make. Can he not be trusted to give genuine wisdom for the path of thriving in life? Even if I cannot see the end of my obedience to him, even if it's not obvious to me, I can trust the one who loved me in this way, not to lead me astray. The fear of the Lord is, in fact, the beginning of the thriving, the wisdom we long for. Our hearts resist Jesus' wisdom, and it's this wisdom that not only then marks the path of thriving, but it promises that thriving. That's where we need to, to land here. So Jesus takes these two pathways to some sense of a logical conclusion, right? Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock, and everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man 
who built his house on the sand. That's the metaphor then, which Elizabeth has so well illustrated for us, a house built on a rock and a house built on sand. One in the end does not fall and one does. Look at verse 25 and verse 27 here. The rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock Verse 27, the rain fell, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against the house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. It's pretty straightforward, clearly illustrated, but I want you to ask the question, what does it mean for the house to stand? What does that mean? What's the significance of the house standing? And I think what's wrapped up here is what do we mean when we say we want to thrive? We want to not just live, we want to flourish, we want to thrive. Well, here's how many of us read the Bible. And we come away with the idea that what the Bible means here is that being faithful to God will bring to us certain and unending prosperity. And many of you are theologically adept and you say, "Uh uh-uh, that's not me, that's them. And I say, no, it absolutely is you. It is all of us. It's easy for us to mock those who believe God promises them BMWs and private resorts on the beach. But we have our own way of molding and shaping a prosperity Christianity. Somewhere deep within inside us, we have this idea that God promises us good health. He promises us perfect children. We expect to have Paul in the pulpit and David on guitar. Because why? Well, we have done good things, God. We are your children. Why is this happening to me? Do you see the logic there? You know, when we say that, I've I've done good, I've been in church, I worship you, I love you, and this bad thing is happening. We are saying those two things shouldn't coexist. Why? Because we all really do inhabit some sense of this prosperity gospel. And that's not what Jesus promises here. So what's great about this passage? Well, we need to notice again here, what is not different between these two pictures? Notice what's not different. Verse 25, um, let's see. The rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. Verse 27, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. It's the same Both houses, battle, rain, flood, winds, both encounter the realities of a fallen world. Both are subject to adversity and tribulation. Both of those who do and do not do the words of Jesus face affliction. In fact, for some, following Jesus leads to poverty and opposition, disease and heartbreak. So where is the thriving? What is the standing that Jesus is promising? It has to be something along the lines that in the long run we know that he will always catch us when we fall. We can know that he will be present with us even in the valley of the shadow of death and however you define that. the valley I mean, so many of us are in those valleys even though death is not a part of the aspect. It's dark. It's alone. The wind is blowing, but Jesus is with you. In the long run, we will know that as we fix our eyes on Jesus, he is not only the author of your faith, He is the finisher. He is going to see you through. He will inevitably see you home. 
you can rest in that and know that all will be right. Orb and I finished reading a book that was published a number of years ago, um, All the Light We Cannot See. And in that book, the main character, Lauren Marie, is a young, blind Parisian girl at the time the Nazis Nazi, the Germans overran Paris. Her father has to get her out of the city, and they find they have to walk. She cannot see where they're going. She has no idea where they're going. She would ask, where are we going? He would tell her, but it was meaningless to her because she could not envision where that is. All she knew is that they had to ration their food, and they wore their shoes out. But she also knew she was not alone. She did not need to despair. Her father was with her. She couldn't see, and we often cannot see, but trusting our Father makes that experience far different. It's following Jesus that brings us closer to the garden that we long for, even though the path that we have to follow feels like we're moving further away. So when the rains come... When the winds beat against our house, when the storms rise, that is not the time to run out of the rocky house into the sandy house. That's our temptation. When the storm rises, when things get difficult as Christians or as the church, the temptation is to effect short-term solutions instead of resting in the long-term promises of God. I hear messages around, the part, around America, Christians in America, saying, look, the wind and the rain has come. It's time to panic. We need to take up arms in a combative, offensive attitude aimed at reclaiming some kind of glory. And Jesus calls us to peace and to do good works. Young men are being fed an aggressive, domineering, militant vision of manhood, contrary to the character of the perfect man Jesus, whom we are called to follow. I think these messages are out there because we don't trust Jesus. But now is not our time to run from Jesus' words, but to run to them. That's the way of wisdom and the sole promise of thriving. The house that needs to fall is the house of me. Even though all around us seems to be adrift, the more we heed these words of Jesus, the more we will be transformed in the image of Christ, the more the church will be transformed into the kingdom of Christ, the more we will find ourselves, well, let me put it this way, less and less vulnerable to the winds and waves. The Apostle Paul says our suffering produces character and our character produces hope and hope will never disappoint us. In other words, you will thrive and the only kind of thriving that matters in the end. So yes, our fallen hearts resist Jesus' wisdom, even though Jesus' wisdom marks the path of our ultimate thriving. So we must believe that His wisdom promises thriving and keep our eyes fixed there. A few weeks ago, we were visiting family up in Cincinnati, and I got to run with two of my nieces. We ran a, one of these converted rails-to-trails routes along the Little Miami River in Loveland, Ohio, and we ran along the foot of a hill along the river, at the top of which is perched the house that I grew up in. The hill is so steep, and the house sits so close to the edge, looking up from down below with all the leaves gone, it was, did appear precarious. It's a wonder that the 
faintest storm did not cause it to slide down into the river. Well, it doesn't because my dad built it. As a builder, he would often remind me that, that the foundation was in rock. That was the essence of the hill. It is not sliding anywhere. Further, my dad was a concrete mason by trade. He became a general contractor later in life, but concrete was in his blood. Hence, every wall and every ceiling of that house is made of the same substance, concrete. Every wall. You know, you may walk into a house and say, hey, I don't like that wall there. Let's move it. Uh-uh. It's not happening. Not this one. Now, in southwest Ohio, we get a number of tornadoes, right? Tornado sirens would wail regularly. But in this house, there was no need to run anywhere except stay away from the windows. As long as you stayed clear of the windows, you were safe. This thing was a bunker. But here's the thing. In that house, I was safe. Where'd that safety come from? It didn't come from me. It came from my father, the one who built the house. That's why I needed to stay in the house. We need to pray, people of God, as the catechism reminds us, that God would remove our blindness and weakness and enable us to really follow Jesus, stay in the house that he has built, trusting him even in the storm, knowing that he alone can navigate us through it, that we follow him with humility, cheerfulness, faithfulness, diligence, zeal, sincerity, and constancy, and in so doing, not only is the Father glorified, but our hearts will be cheered and we will be kept safe and he will take us home. Let's pray. Thank you, God, for your word again as we prayed at the beginning. But Lord, we also pray, appeal to you, beg of you, Lord God, that by your Holy Spirit, you would take the words that are spoken and impress them upon my heart, those around, those who hear. For we need these words. We need the 